Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Amy Standen. I'm a reporter for KQED Quest. Is climate change a game changer when it comes to oil imports? How will it reshape geopolitics? Here to discuss these issues and questions from our live audience is Cleo Pascal. Uh, she's the associ- an associate fellow at the Royal Institute of International Affairs and author of Global Warring. Please give her a warm Commonwealth Club open. Welcome. <laughs> Um, so, Cleo, <laughs> I wanted to start with a little doom and gloom here um, and, and ask you to paint a picture for us of what the worst case scenario could be. And I ask this because I think most of us can imagine sort of the physical consequences of climate change. And we've heard about rising sea levels, eroding coastlines, um, droughts and storms. But, but how does this all become a matter of national security? There are essentially two ways it can go. You can get uh, a lot of very sudden impacts, the sort of thing that we saw in New Orleans, for example. And there are very vulnerable locations in the U.S. Miami is very vulnerable. Manhattan is very vulnerable. Washington is very vulnerable. So you can get these big hits that uh, have a rolling long-term impact. New Orleans still hasn't rebuilt. It's still a drain on the GDP in the area. Um, or you can get, if, if we don't get the big hits, you will definitely get this slow, gradual erosion of stability and infrastructure across the board in many, many different areas, especially along the coast, but also in areas affected like California by drought and other water issues inland. I wonder if you could give us a, um, an example of what that sort of slow erosion might feel like. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about two different examples. One, the, the examples you all just gave are, are here in the States, um, a well-developed country, obviously. So talk a little bit about how we would start to feel that here. And then I also want to hear about other parts of the world where um, things are already maybe a little less stable. Yeah, we have um, here in the U.S., uh, we're starting to see increasing disruptions. So over this winter, um, I had to go to Washington a few times and transit through Newark. We have very centralized transportation hubs now. So, uh, you know, if you've got, if, if Newark is down or if JFK is down or LaGuardia is down, even though you're going from, you know, Minnesota to DC, you will be affected. And I, and twice this winter, I had flights canceled because of storm conditions in those areas. These are unusual levels of precipitation. Whatever's causing them is sort of irrelevant. We're just seeing more and more of these disruptions. And because of how interconnected our systems are, not just our transportation systems, but also our energy systems, our economic systems. When critical hubs start to go down, you start to see these increasing um, erosion of stability. Now, right now we're treating them as one-offs, but eventually as costs increase, especially, you'll start to see the insurance industry kicking in, premiums going up, operating costs increasing. Um, And we'll have to acknowledge that these uh, new variables are creating... Uh, these disruptions that are having long-term costs. And that 
if we don't respond, if, if we don't readjust our business models and readjust, uh, put in more adaptation and more flexibility into our systems, then it's just going to become more costly, more uh, difficult to function. We're not going to be able to deliver the sort of things we promised we could deliver. Uh, other markets, foreign markets, will go look for other sources. You know, it, it, it affects our reputation and our ability to function. So it, it's, it's a real domino effect there. It's interesting. So, you know, something like disrupted airline travel planes can't land as frequently means, I imagine, prices for things go up. Uh, yeah. Americans find they can't afford stuff but they it, used to be able to afford. Exactly. I mean, one sort of bizarre example, but it's indicative, it was uh, uh, Katrina knocked out a helicopter parts plant in Louisiana that was supplying pieces to the Indian military. Now, that meant that their Indian military helicopters grounded. They couldn't fight war on terror-type battles in certain areas. They couldn't uh, enforce domestic security. So, of course, now they're looking for other supply lines because this supply line is clearly unstable. So Katrina can affect domestic security in India if you haven't taken environmental change into account when you're putting together your uh, support infrastructure for your critical facilities. That's interesting. You, you mentioned the, the military. I think it was in 2007 there were a group of American generals, uh, maybe 14 of them, who decided that finally the American military needs to start thinking of global warming as a, a military issue. What were they afraid of? Uh, well, you know, In other words, once again, how does this become sort of an economic problem and start being an, a matter of actual security? Well, there are two, there are two different sorts of issues um, that they addressed, and it's a very good report. Um, one of them was um, energy-related. Uh, it's extremely complicated and difficult to have uh, supply lines in a war zone to support your operations. So if you have uh, solar-powered tanks, <laughs> you're in a much better position than if you need to try to get a, a barrel of oil from base 500 miles away. And in fact, a lot of the casualties that you see with these uh, uh, the IEDs are supply lines trying to get uh, oil and gas out to uh, forward bases. So they were concerned about that. So just from that perspective, it, it becomes a security issue, trying to shift over to different sorts of energy systems. But what they were concerned about also was uh, increasing insecurity primarily elsewhere in the world, and so increasing demands on the, on the U.S. military for humanitarian interventions, the sort of thing we're seeing in Haiti, that, that kind of thing. Haiti was not obviously a climate change event, but that kind of intervention where you get big disruptions in a, in a country that needs, needs to be stabilized. And the um, impression that the U.S. military has is they will be the ones called on for that intervention. That's another discussion, whether the U.S. military will continue to be called on in those situations. But that was the assumption made for that report. And, and that's something that became, I think, very clear in Katrina, right, when we found that huge parts of our, um, our National Guard was already occupied in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, is that the kind of thing you're alluding, you're talking about? Yeah, they didn't cover domestic quite so much. Uh, I'm much more concerned about domestic. Um, Do, I'm sorry, domestic. Dom- domestic crisis. security. Okay. Yeah, they, they were more concerned with uh, interventions abroad. And so, you know, for example, the, the, the classic case which keeps being brought up is uh, if there's the sea level rise as predicted with Bangladesh, you're talking about 10 to 20 million displaced Bangladeshis. Now, uh, India has already 
built a fence around Bangladesh. They don't want those people coming in. Uh, They're perceived as being a security threat. There's a lot of radicalization happening in the refugee camps, uh, partially through Pakistan. So you have a potentially uh, dispossessed, radicalized refugee population group that you, you really don't quite know what to do with. So the U.S. military is concerned that that might spread and become a problem on you know, the streets of New York if people are coming in through other, other routes. Um, so they want to try to limit the damage in the countries before it happens. What happened domestically, Katrina is a very good example. The military was uh, very overstretched. The National Guard should be the service doing this. They're not trained for it. They're not equipped for it. They're not staffed for it. Recruitment is very difficult because of the wars right now. Um, And so you ended up with a situation where Blackwater went into New Orleans before the Red Cross was allowed into New Orleans. You know, this is not something that is healthy for a civil society. Uh, we're, We're not protecting ourselves properly. You, you write about how civilization is designed around a stable climate. I mean, that's sort of the, the foundation of how societies grow, a predictable rainfall, when is harvest going to happen. Um, and those kinds of issues, I would think, are still very much a factor. Certainly in Darfur, we, we see a drought setting off a, a devastating chain of, of, of consequences. Yeah. Uh, in India, the stock market is linked to the monsoon. So, you know, if there's a bad monsoon, or the predictions are for a bad monsoon, the stock market goes down. Because they're, they're, they're much more realistic. Right here, the financial system has become very disconnected from uh, actual real functionings of economies, as we saw with the financial crisis. So if you're dealing with uh, countries like India, for example, where there is much more of a realistic interlinkage between what's actually produced and, um, and what can be produced, if you have big variations in climate, it will be reflected in the stock market. Because they, you know, if you get heat waves, productivity is going to go down. Operating costs are going to be increased because of air conditioning, all that sort of stuff. So there's a much more realistic economic linkage and understanding of the economic impacts in a place like India than there is in Wall Street, for example. Right. I mean, given all that, you know, it's surprising that, and I remember when this report came out in 2007, a lot of people said, uh, yeah, you know, what's taken you so long? Um, and, and even, I don't think, I'm not sure now that that is a widespread movement within at least the U.S. Um, military. So I'm wondering, what what is the resistance, the reluctance to start thinking about climate change as a domestic security issue or international security issue? There's, uh, there are very, some very good people in Washington looking at this. So the CIA has set up a climate change and security unit. There was a national intelligence estimate done on it. The, the military is very concerned. Um, there are two, just to go, go back to what was saying before, there, there are two components to it. One is the external concern, and the other is internal. Most of the focus really has been on external and on how you know this might affect Bangladesh or might affect Afghanistan, for example, with water supply problems, or it might affect China with domestic security and the, as you were alluding to before, the India-China situation in the Tibetan plateau, those sorts of things. Um, that's r- really been primarily the focus. Domestically, it is uh, environment is extremely political. So one of the first things that would need to be reassessed, for example, is the National Flood Insurance Program. The flood insurance. In the mm-hmm. U.S., mm-hmm. you know, because the, the way it, it works now, private insurers will look at a coastline like in Florida and say, you know, this is a sinking coastline 
in a hurricane zone. We're not going to touch it. Right? But what happens is the federal government will then come in and back those insurance policies. So the government is essentially subsidizing people to live in an area which the market has said is, is going to go down. Right? So the first thing you'd have to do, and there are, good, and there are sound short-term political economic reasons for it. High property values, paying high property tax, it's going into local government. Local government puts pressure on local congressmen to keep the National Flood Insurance Program going. The uh, program has been bankrupt for years, but it keeps getting funding for these political reasons. So that would have to be scrapped, right? It, we would have to stop it would, helping yeah, it people would definitely live in vulnerable have to be areas. At least reevaluated. Right. Because, because also they're looking at places that are flood zones now, not necessarily flood zones that will become in the next 50, 100 years as uh, sea levels rise, which is the time frame for insurance schemes. So that, that, that frame, that time frame isn't being incorporated anyway, but even with the existing situation, it's subsidizing disaster essentially. But nobody wants to touch it because you'll lose your, uh, your constituents who will suddenly have no insurance. You'll lose your uh, lobby money from developers. Your, your local governments will be displeased. You know, it's, it's interlinked into so many of the existing systems. The real domestic change becomes very politically and economically difficult. It's interesting listening to you say that. Um it, you know, you see a really similar thing happening here in California with wildfires. Um, a lot of uh, the wealthier homes are situated in places like the Berkeley Hill, you know, really fire-prone areas. And, of course, in Southern California, up of Malibu, where they've had terrible fires. Um, again, as I understand it, a, a global warming issue. Um, so is that is this a sort of typically American kind of problem, this issue of insurers and, and government backing up insurers, or do we see this all around the world? It's very common in any Western-based sort of market-based system. Yeah. It's, it's, a lot of it comes down to um, time cycles for decision-making. So uh, in the U.S., the political time frame is essentially two years, right, because of the midterm elections. So the, you get very little political capital out of making a decision that's going to cost you in the next two years but will only pay off in, you know, 20 years. Um, so, it's, it be, again, because of the system, it becomes very difficult to implement some of these needed changes. But I would also just broaden the cause out from global warming, climate change, to general environmental change. Because what we saw in New Orleans was a Category 3 hurricane in a hurricane zone. This is completely consistent with historical record. This was not an unusual climate event. But what had happened in New Orleans was they had re-engineered, sorry, they'd re-engineered the whole coastline. So they had built on floodplains, drained wetlands, um, had destroyed barrier-type um, blockages, uh, had poorly designed levees, m- major subsidence, pumping out of groundwater. There had been very large-scale environmental change to the region that dramatically increased its vulnerability. So even if, there, if climate change didn't exist, that still would have happened. So when we're looking for real solutions to uh, increase domestic security, we need, or any security, we need to look at the full range of uh, environmental change factors in order to understand what the real threats are. So I want to take you to a, d- a different, very different part of the world, um, and, and uh, which is the, the Arctic. Um, mm-hmm. 
In August 2007, members of the Russian parliament, traveling by mini-submarine, I read, um, planted a flag two and a half miles below the North Pole. Um, Essentially, we own this. Um, More recently, Canada has announced plans to send ice-cutting ships through the passage. Do these gestures do anything? In other words, you know, does Russia now own that part because they stuck the flag on it? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, what, what they did do was, uh, it was extremely helpful for the U.S. military to justify increased uh, Arctic awareness w- among U.S. policymakers. It was very helpful for, for uh, non-Russian Arctic nations who are concerned about Arctic issues because it had been a very... fire under them. Yeah. yeah, it had been a very quiet, it had been a quiet issue for a long time and then there was this publicity stunt. And, I mean, you know, not that long before the, a U.S. sub went up to the North Pole and surfaced and they played a game of football on the ice at the North Pole, right? I mean, there's, there's been these sort of games going on for a long it's funny, time. It's just a different way of, of That's <laughs> planning right, yeah. your flag. They probably would have... <laughs> played golf if they could have, but it was a little, little cold. Um, uh, it's a, it is a, uh, the rules for how the Arctic will be carved up are, are fairly clear with the exception of the Northwest Passage. They're based on uh, geography, and the rules are set out in the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. The U.S. is not a signatory to the convention, but has said that it will abide by uh, agreements as though they were signatory in this case. So there's a lot, very active mapping going on right now of uh, ridges and, you know, sort of just the geography of, of, the, of the Arctic. So the seabed claims are likely to be resolved relatively easily and in a relatively straightforward fashion. The shipping in the Northwest Passage is much more political. Now, before we talk about what the Northwest Passage is, um, tell me... Well, I guess actually this is part of the same question. I, I want to get a sense first of what the stakes are here. I'm thinking about oil. I'm thinking about shipping routes. Why do we care so much about the Northwest Passage? Well, in terms of uh, oil, the Arctic region is, is, according to the U.S. Geological Survey, has about a quarter to a third of all undiscovered oil and gas. So it's a quarter. I mean, yeah. a quarter to a third of the undiscovered oil and natural. That's huge. It's huge. <laughs> It's not easy to get, yeah, <laughs> right? Sure. Um, but it's particularly valuable because uh, Western oil companies are being pushed out of a lot of regions where they used to operate. So they're being pushed out of Russia, pushed out of Venezuela. You know, so they're, the areas in which Western-based oil companies can operate is shrinking. So, and there are very few new discoveries being made. So from their perspective, this is incredibly important if they're going to continue to be able to produce. Um, Again, uh, these are very difficult operating conditions. Uh, A lot of it's deep. The Arctic ice will be there in the winter forever (laughs) or for, you know, centuries at least. It may go away in the summer, but it'll be there in the winter. So these are really hard operating conditions. And the economic viability depends a lot on the oil and gas price, obviously. So that's oil and gas. And that will be decided, those claims, those are seabed claims, those will be decided by uh, the Unconventional Law of Sea likely in the next year or two. So those, that's kind of a whole separate thing. Can I, can I interrupt you just with a a quick question yeah. about that. We talk a lot about peak oil. Yeah. Does peak oil factor in those reserves that haven't been tapped yet? 
Well, it does in terms of price. I mean, peak oil is essentially, uh, you know, the peak of uh, economically viable oil. So, I mean, there might still be oil in the ground after our peak oil thing, but it just will be way too expensive. You know, other energy systems will become more economically viable at that point. So uh, if peak oil, you know, starts to come into play and you start to see $150, $200 barrels, then the Arctic becomes a lot more economically viable at that stage. Right. Okay, yeah. so I in- interrupted you. I think you were about to... Yeah. So the, the other issue is the Northwest Passage. Northwest Passage is primarily a shipping issue. Um, right now, if you're going from, uh, from Europe to Asia or the uh, east coast of the U.S. to Asia, you have to go through the Panama Canal or the Suez Canal. If you go through the Northwest Passage, which is, uh, which is a communal name for uh, uh, several different routes through northern Canada. Um, it can cut up to a quarter of the travel time. Um, also, it the size of the ship isn't restricted. So uh, if you're going through Panama, for example, there's a size for the ship that can fit through. It's uh, currently, it's unregulated, it's unmonitored. Um, you know, you can it's it, there's only I think there have only been a few ships that have actually gone through commercially anyway, but if it opens up, it becomes an extremely attractive shipping route. It's quicker, it's cheaper, um, and it doesn't have these size restrictions. Now, in the book, you refer to shipping routes as choke points. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, why and how? At what point and how does the Northwest Passage turn from this great opportunity to actually a, a choke point? They have the, the shipping routes are the circulatory system of the global economy. So, uh, you know, that's what's keeping all the goods moving and, and everything like that. So, and there, there are a few parts of the world where that uh, gets constrained, where uh, routes have to be forced, are forced through narrow passages. So one is Panama, one is Suez, uh, one is Hormuz. I mean, you're, see, you're seeing, that's why the pirates have those opportunities because the ships have to go through there. And if Arctic shipping opens up, the Bering Strait will become a new one. It's where everything going through the Arctic will, will have to funnel through that area. Um, that's an opportunity, I think, to set up a verification station uh, to make sure that any ship going into the Arctic can handle those waters and what, whatever's on there is safe. Now, right now, the U.S. position on the Arctic is this is an international strait and there's freedom of the seas, which means anybody can go through. That, uh, that freedom of the seas position, which the U.S. has held for a very long time, is largely based on the assumption that in a freedom of the seas situation, the U.S. will control the seas, um, Especially in the Arctic, um, but globally as well, the U.S. really is in no longer a position to control things the way that they used to. So my concern is that essentially by saying Arctic is a freedom of the seas issue, they are opening up the Arctic for China, South Korea, Russia, and uh, undermining North American security in particular, but uh, global security potentially as well. You, 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 meant, you said America is, is no longer in a position to assume that we'll be able to control them. Obviously, I'm an American, so that piques my interest. Um, um, is, is that because of 
anti-Americanism, or to what extent is that because of how much anti-Americanism we're already seeing? It's, I mean, it's tactical. I mean, you know, it's the operationally, uh, things are, you know, wars are being fought differently. So, you know, if the U.S. was in a position to control the seas, you wouldn't be having the pirates, you know, hitting the ships going into the Gulf. I mean, you just wouldn't, you see it. It's not, it's not, the control isn't there like it used to be there. There are a lot of other actors on the field being backed for a lot of other reasons. And the world's a much more complicated place. Let's come back to Russia. I mean, are we hearing from the Russians that they would like to be or or think that they should be the ones, you know, taking the toll um, at the opening of the Northwest Passage or controlling that area, that that passage? They're not. They control. There are two routes. There's the Northwest Passage, which goes over Canada, and there's, for convenience sake, the Northeast Passage, which goes over Russia. Russia controls its Northeastern Passage. So it charges ships to go through. It charges a, a very erratic uh, passage fee, and it charges uh, occasionally insurance costs in advance. I mean, it's, it, there's no standardized system in place right now. Uh, so I suspect they wouldn't be averse to getting a cut of a toll for going into the Arctic. Um, but as far as I know, those discussions really haven't begun because because the U.S. has really been pushing this freedom of the seas issue. And how, just in terms of the, look, the, the lay and the look of that land, how there are already some routes available, but climate change is, what is climate change doing to the Northwest Passage? Right. The, uh, the extent of Arctic sea ice is fluctuating quite dramatically, but it seems to be generally declining. Um, because of the way the winds move and the, the geography uh, in Canada, Canada breaks up into a whole bunch of islands. So it's very easy for ice to get snagged up in the straits between the islands. The Russian coast is largely open. So uh, in Russia, that route has been clearing a lot more quickly. In the Northwest Passage, uh, you're getting periods when it's open. A couple of, I think, German ships went through last summer. Um, and they just sailed right through. Right? Russia is very keen to open up Routes from Russia into North America via Canada. So they've also offered to run icebreaker convoys of uh, cargo through the area. So it's opening up. It's opening up a little unpredictably. It's it's uh, opening up. It's a bit patchy. Uh, it's a very large area. It's difficult to sail through. Uh, there are ways you could speed up that shipping by running icebreaker convoys, for example. Uh, it's going to happen. We just haven't really figured out how yet. Uh, before we go on, I want to remind people that uh, this is Climate One, and our guest today is Cleo Pascal. I'm Amy Standen. Um, as a Canadian, uh, if I can ask you to represent the people of Canada for a moment here, all of them. I'm always proud to. Yeah. <laughs> is, is there a feeling that this is... Canadian territory that is suddenly being that is being sort of infringed upon by these foreign interests. I mean, Canada is the land, you know, it's the country that's contiguous to, to the Northwest Passage. What is the sort of is, is are people talking about this in, in Canada? It's in a way? really touchy issue. Yeah. I mean, but uh, and and particularly for Canada's Aboriginal people, for for the Inuit and Inuvialuit, you know, who are the people of the land up there. Um, this is highly emotional, but. A lot of the international focus is on the ocean. For them, what's also very critical is what's happening on land, which is a very rapid permafrost thaw. 
So a lot of the infrastructure is being undermined and their traditional ways are being jeopardized. Um, uh, hunters are getting caught on ice flows like they never have before because they can't read the ice properly. So for them, it's a very living, real issue. I would say uh, approximately 90% of the Canadian population lives within 100 miles of the U.S. border. So yes, we care about the Arctic. Yes, it's a hot-button issue. But the bigger one is, you know, we think you're coming after our water. And that get, that'll get Canadians pretty riled up also. Are we? Yeah, you are. <laughs> where, where? Where are we getting it? Well, you know, the level of the Great Lakes has been mysteriously dropping. And, uh-huh. you know, and there are rivers that flow into Canada from the U.S. that are actually not being so well managed on the U.S. side. And so we, we're getting floods and drought cycles into the, like the Red River coming up, up into it. But, yeah. But, I mean, you know, from a national security perspective, the U.S. needs to reevaluate its water supply. And that means it has to look at Canada and it has to look at Mexico. And from a U.S. perspective, the Mexican relationship is probably going to be even more tricky. I mean, in term, we're certainly sending a lot of polluted water down to Mexico, and that's starting to be more and more of a, a political issue. But I have to, it, it's water um, as, a, as an American... We talk a lot about water quality here in, in, in the States, but um, I don't hear a lot about water as a sort of scarcity problem, at least in terms of our relationships with Canada and Mexico and, you know, how much more can we steal from Canada? Um, is, is that going to be something that you hear about more in the American press? Uh, I don't know about the American press. And I know that, that in U.S. security circles they're discussing it and they really don't want to discuss it publicly because it is such a touchy issue for, for both neighbors. Um, I would like to see it better covered in, in the U.S. media um, because I think an open debate would be very helpful. Uh, and right now that's not happening. However, water scarcity issues are being discussed in other contexts, I mean, especially in California. If you, talk, if you go to the farmlands or in India, you know, this, is a, this is really sensitive. And it feeds into, when you're looking at water, you're basically also looking at food and energy because energy production requires a lot of water. So there was a nuclear plant that was proposed for Utah that's just been postponed or canceled because they can't secure water rights for cooling. So you, I think we just shut down a plant in New York on the same grounds too. Yeah. yeah. So you're going to start to see more of these water issues affecting uh, food and energy issues domestically. And this is where this new variability, this environmental change variability, really needs to be incorporated into more assessments, this change over time. Uh, at every policy level, you know, stimulus package funding, for example, billions went into infrastructure. Nothing went into looking at whether that infrastructure is in a location that would be viable in 10, 20 years. You know, I mean, that's just... Uh, I'm sorry, can you, can you give an example of it? where is a place where the... Infra- like? building up our coasts or something. Well, for, I mean, yeah. to, to, you know, a lot of the infrastructure that was destroyed in Katrina was rebuilt in exactly the same location. Uh-huh, right. And uh, stimulus package funding was similar. You know, you're building up in areas that already had established populations instead of looking to see whether you could use that funding to shift populations into more stable zones. I mean, it's hard to talk about this stuff right now and not acknowledge that there is this huge or at least very vocal movement in the states of people who feel that climate change isn't actually even happening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, given that what looks a bit like a backlash, um, how, you know, do you have much hope that these kinds of reassessments are going to, uh, to start happening? Well, they have, uh, climate, generally, people who say they don't believe in climate change, actually, generally what they're saying is they don't believe in anthropogenic climate change. Sure. 
And, um, but I think they also don't believe that we should be worried about it. In other words, taking steps to you know, fund renewable research and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think uh, renewable, see, it's interesting that you said that because there's been a very strong linkage in the press between climate change and energy. And, and, and I think it would be useful to reassess that sort of discussion because there are, even if you're going down the anthropogenic climate change route, you know, the, according to the UN, the livestock industry produces more carbon emissions than the transportation industry. But we've been very focused on the energy sector. Now, I think there are very, very good energy security reasons um, to be focused on renewable energies. And because of increasing extreme events on decentralized grids, local grids, you know, increased redundancy in your energy systems. And I think that those people who may not be looking at renewables because of climate change would accept the argument that we need to look at renewables for a lot of other national security reasons as well. So I I think there's been a lot of uh, polarization and a willingness to use disagreement with certain aspects of arguments to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And by having more round discussions, uh, we may be able to find ways of moving forward where people are more comfortable. I think we're um, ready to open the floor to some questions. Um, If you have a question, would you stand behind the microphone? Hi, my name is Bud Smith. Uh, is your, are your projections based on the most recent IPCC reports? As to, I haven't had a chance to look at the book yet. Yeah. Uh, no, I, well, I, uh, the IPCC report has some findings, but I tend to cross-reference and use a lot of the Hadley Center research. The Hadley Center is the uh, climate change research center that's part of the UK Meteorological Office, which is part of the Ministry of Defense there, actually. Um, and they're their projections are uh, constantly being revised. And the IPCC process is a very, as you know, a very complex, wieldy process. So I, uh, and it has some problems with it. But, the, but I use Hadley, and I try also to use as much as possible um, uh, uh, extrapolations based on what's already being seen, right? So this is what we know is happening. So if this continues to happen, you know, is there a chance it won't continue to happen? And if not, then what will, what will happen as a result. So does that lead you later in the century to be looking at things like food security challenges and mass migrations even in our hemisphere, not just... Yeah, uh, yeah. and I, I mean, I would project, uh, and I say it in the book, I think that the U.S. is going to have a serious problem with internal migration. You know, I, Katrina, the re, Katrina refugees in many cases still are displaced, you know, and if that's going to happen, if we're going to see continuous disruption within the U.S., then we need to start looking at projects for integration. You know, for how how do you absorb a refugee community? Because 150,000 Katrina refugees went into Houston and trashed the Houston budget. You know, Houston is not going to be looking to take in more refugees the next time around. So we need to start looking at new systems for doing that. And just one last quick question: Does that become a national security problem for Canada at some point? Well, you mean how many Americans are we going to let in? <laughs> how tight uh, are your borders? Yeah, we have actually the 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 uh, the Canadian government is concerned about a lot of these issues, particularly concerned about um, sort of boatloads of refugees of refugees coming after extreme events. And what do you do? 
you know, I mean, these pe- people who may have had their, you know, entire island flooded out, and they show up on your shores. You know, what do you do? So, yeah, it's a lot of governments are very concerned about it. Thank you. So, recently, um, there's been a lot of um, mobilization, perhaps, by um, white terrorist organizations, hate groups within the United States, um, due to general economic decline, um, the attack on the IRS and the Pentagon. I'm wondering if you have um, looked at the rise of, of terrorist organizations terrorist groups within the U.S., militias, right-wing militias, um, and, and sort of the climate uh, change impacting that? Uh, I haven't. Um, I, I know that often climate change is used as a justification for a pre-existing um, desire, let's say. So if you, know, if you want to say that the U.S. is an evil empire, uh, like Osama bin Laden does, then you say, and they created climate change, like he did. So I would expect that uh, climate change would be factored into their mythology, into their into the sort of the whole way that they think about things, but uh, not in any kind of real meaningful way. But it would just become part of the justification for the behavior that they want to exhibit anyway. At the same time, and you mentioned a minute ago, um, you know, the prospect of having boatloads of refugees or carloads of refugees, you can see that possibly. Yeah, um, it'll, yeah. that's right. It'll, I think it'll, fa- you know, it'll just become another reason for doing what they want to be doing. I mean, you see, it's interesting, for example, with religion. Um, uh, some religious groups are looking at climate change as, you know, proof of, of you know, apocalypse type thing. But a lot are looking at it and saying, this is a social responsibility for us. You know, uh, we were, you know, God gave us the earth to look after and we're not looking after it. So, you know, you can look at it as a negative or a positive and it's going to dovetail with whatever your general trend is anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hi, um, I've just returned from Bonn uh, where the UNFCCC was having the, the next round of talks after okay. Copenhagen. And so I have the UNFCCC on my mind to try and understand where it fits with all of the other stuff that's happening. Um, I'm just curious, I, I guess, two, two questions. Uh, one, if, um, if you think that the security implications and people taking this much more serious, seriously with all the attention that, that Copenhagen and brought and everything else, um, if that will make it easier to, to get mitigation and adaptation finance pledges um, in addition to the development pledges that are already on the table as opposed to sort of dipping from the same pot of money, which is a big concern. Second, uh, I, I wondered if you could speak to um, uh, some of the opportunity cost for, for sort of not moving, I guess, not moving ahead and, and getting some sort of global uh, regime in place or some sort of global treaty in place to address climate change. What, what about uh, markets and uh, the, just the great opportunities uh, that maybe moving into a more sustainable form of development, clean energy, et cetera. Um, what happens if we don't get that right, or at least if the U.S. doesn't get, get uh, um, involved more constructively? Mm. Oh, good questions. Uh, I, was at, I was at that uh, grand disaster called Copenhagen, um, and it was, uh, it was really interesting because even before it started, it had, uh, it was, had gotten very far away from the science. And... Um, Essentially, what happened was there was an attempt by uh, 
by the West and, and part led by the U.S. to put um, a climate financial mechanism system in place, like a new, a, a new market system based on, on, on climate issues, largely, almost, actually almost exclusively carbon. So, and you literally had some of the same people involved in designing credit default swaps involved in designing what was presented by the U.S., and part of the reason is, you know, carbon trading at that point, 2009, was at about $180 billion a year, and it was projected to go to about $2 trillion by 2020. So you're looking at places like London and New York that have had the bottom drop out of their financial sectors. These are, there are a lot of, you know, broke bankers and traders looking for something to, to trade. Um, and so there was a really big push to try to create these new... Uh, markets that would be based out of London and New York and sort of traditional financial centers. Um, n- not Potentially not having very much to do with the science because at that point they were saying already two degrees is a given. right? China and particularly India looked at that and said, this is a trade deal. This is a WTO type deal. And we closed down WTO and we're going to close this down. You know, if we if there's money to be made off trading carbon, we want those markets set up in Shanghai and in Mumbai. You know, why would we have you, you know, run our financial mechanisms? You just crash the global economic system. So what happened in Copenhagen at, at sort of the kind of top geopolitical level was just geopolitics. And I think that, and, and for me, what was important about it was it was clear that the U.S. side had absolutely no idea what was going on because otherwise President Obama wouldn't have gone, you know, and have that sort of humiliating situation where he had to bang on a door to get into a meeting of, you know, Brazil, South Africa, India, and China. Now, I would hope that that would be a wake-up call and that they would go back to Washington and that they would rethink and try to devise policies uh, that are more inclusive, I haven't really seen that yet. So from a, from a mitigation and carbon trading point of view, I think what's going to happen is the sort of thing you're talking about in terms of markets being set up. And there will be, you know, Mumbai will become a carbon trading center and Shanghai will become a carbon trading center because there is a lot of money to be made. Whether it actually affects mitigation is another question. In terms of what might actually affect mitigation, if you're looking from an energy sector point of view, is the other thing you're talking about, which is new energy systems. And the, and the developing world is working, pushing very hard on that. So China's pushing on solar, it's pushing on wind. India's going to, for energy security reasons alone, is looking at it. I was just in the kingdom of Tonga in the South Pacific. They've announced they're going to go 50% renewable by 2012. Nothing to do with mitigation. Everything to do with the oil price spike of 2008, which wrecked their economy. So the developing world will definitely try to shift over energy systems. And if the U.S. doesn't, they will have a problem because they'll be competing and sort of in, with much higher functioning costs from an energy sector perspective. Very quickly on, on the top of adapt, adaptation funding, um, in the West hasn't ponied up Millennium Development Goal funding yet. So I would hope that they would come through with some of what's been pledged for adaptation, but I haven't seen a lot of it yet. I want to remind people that um, I am Amy Standen, and this is Climate One. Uh, our guest today is Cleo Pascal. She's an associate fellow at the Royal Institute of International Affairs and author of the new book, Global Warring. Next question. Yes, thank you. My question is related to the policy debate in the U.S., which is that um, offshore drilling and the development of domestic fossil fuel resources has been um, 
treat it as an energy security issue as well. What do you see happening um, at the federal level, and how do you view this energy security climate issue around uh, the development of fossil resources offshore? Uh, you know, I think it's it's politics, right? So it's going to be very difficult to uh, to derail that train. Um, there needs to be a discussion about uh, the general general energy supply, I mean, sort of along the lines of if you don't shift over to energy systems that are less dependent on global markets, will that affect your overall economic stability? Right now in the U.S., assessments are generally made on a sector-by-sector basis and not how that sector might affect general economic development. We saw it with the healthcare debate, where a lot of the financial discussions were very narrowly based on costs related to healthcare, not on how healthcare issues affect uh, product, general productivity, uh, you know, uh, those sorts of issues. In Canada, when we uh, put in place public health care, productivity went up quite dramatically. I'm not quite sure why, but, you know, there, and I'm not sure whether that would happen in the States, but there wasn't a broadening out of sector dis- sector-based discussions. So right now, when you're looking at offshore drilling, you're looking very narrowly at the sector of, of the oil and gas industry. You're not looking at, you know, for example, in Canada, the equivalent would be the oil sands, which are highly uh, polluting, and they contaminate fresh water. So if you're concerned about water security issues, you're, and if you think that water is going to be necess- that water will be necessary for agriculture and urban development, but you're just looking at the economic evaluation of the oil sands from an oil and gas sector, that water would have no value. But if you look at the value that water would have in agriculture or in other forms of energy production or in urban development, then that water would have quite a substantial value and that would affect the way you look at the economics around the oil sands. So in the same way, a lot of the decisions that are being made about drilling and those sorts of things, the the economic analysis is extremely narrow. And that's that's the way things are usually done. Unless it's broadened out, you're going to continue to have that. I want to do a, a time check here. Do we have half an hour until the end of this? Okay, great. Okay. So um, we do have time for some more questions. Um, I also... Uh, let, let me ask you one that, that just came up. And um, if any of you has another, feel free to, to, to start forming a line at the microphone. Um, I wanted to come back to China because the China that you describe is much savvier than the U.S. is, or at least appears to be so, savvier in terms of looking forward and being strategic um, in terms of food, in terms of water, in terms of um, economy, shipping routes. Um, Describe some of the ways that China is is sort of looking forward and and planning accordingly around climate change specifically. Yeah, yeah. Well, on environmental issues, if I may. Sure. Yeah. Yes. You may. Um, uh, China has it does very long term analyses of key sectors, and one of them is environment. And the um, the one child policy, which was implemented about thirty years ago, is essentially an environmental policy. I'm sorry, the one, the one child, child policy, policy yeah. mm-hmm. right? Where broadly speaking, at least urban populations were limited to one child per couple. Okay. That was because there was an assessment done that looked at available resources and a realization that they didn't have the resources to support a growing population. So they needed to reduce the population. That is a very clear 
very difficult, emotionally difficult, culturally difficult decision to make, but it was based on an environmental resource assessment. Now, you can be sure that if they're going to be making that difficult a decision for domestic uh, demand, they're going to be very aggressive about trying to ensure supply internationally. They'll reduce the demand, but they're not just going to reduce the demand. They're also going to try to increase the supply so that eventually they can rebalance the population. And they've been, the Chinese Communist Party has been very successful about, um, in increasing its net of resources that comes in to feed China, in some cases quite literally. So they have bought farmland in Africa and Asia and you know, setting up in South America to get food directly back into the Chinese market. Now, this is done in largely in country-to-country package deals. So it's done at the national level. So the Chinese government will say, we'll, to an African country, we'll you know, build your infrastructure and we'll give you weapons and we'll train your police and you'll give us access to your, uh, to your uranium and to your farmland. Now, this is the... This is these sort of more cohesive, rounded approaches that I was talking about before, where you're not just doing sector-based analysis, you're doing actual, you know, multifaceted analysis of what's needed and what can be offered. So obviously, if you come in as a, a Western company and all you're interested in is farmland and all you're offering is cash that year, you're at a negotiating disadvantage, you know, if you've got this package-to-package deal, you're not only exchanging all of those resources, you also know China will give you diplomatic cover, like they do with Sudan, for example. So it, it's using the whole levers of state to ensure uh, uh, multifaceted conduits of supply into the Chinese market for essential commodities and services. I was looking for the, for the exact quote, and I'm not seeing it, but you, you make the point in the book, I, as I understand it, that... China's success in doing what you're saying, taking this sort of broad, multifaceted approach, depends partly on being a closed, you know, to a great extent, authoritarian society. Um, am, am, I, am I right in drawing that connection that, 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 that by, by clamping down, they are able to sort of take bigger steps? They, I think, they're, I, I think it, it's, it's not the only way to do it, but it's part of what they do. Um, However, it's all, it also is a weakness because the, the weakness for the Chinese Communist Party is they, you know, it is not easy to live in China. You know, it's, a, it's difficult and, um, and a lot is controlled by the government, but the, not, the bulk of the Chinese people put up with it because there's growth. And life might not be great for them, but it may be better for their children. That means that Chinese Communist Party has to deliver substantial growth visible growth all the time in order to stay in power. And if it doesn't, it's going to have problems. And in some areas, it's already having problems, you know, especially around environmental issues, because the way they've done their growth domestically has had huge environmental uh, disruption, caused huge environmental disruption domestically, heavily polluted rivers, um, you know, a lot of desertification, that, that sort of thing. And most of the demonstrations you're seeing in the countryside are related to environmental issues. But we also see that sort of ever-burgeoning pro-democracy movement. It's happening, coming up a lot with discussions over the Internet. Um, does that 
by that token, sort of start to weaken the Chinese, um, the Communist Party's ability to move the country as one? Yeah, I mean, democracy is very much of a Western issue. So you, you can, I mean, there, there, there are obviously groups in China that want democracy, but what they essentially want is good governance, right? So if you're, if you're talking Trains to... Trains to run on time, that kind of thing. Well, well they don't want, uh, you know, arsenic in their river, right? <laughs> it's kind of as basic as that. So, you know, if, and that is the big immediate concern. If they give, if they give their child a bottle of formula milk, will the milk have melamine in it and will the water have arsenic in it? Right? That's like the basic concern. So if, if a, this government isn't supplying that, then, you know, maybe another government will. And the other form of government may be democratic or may not be democratic, but it's just not, not this one. And in many cases, the problems are actually at the local government level. And local governments will hire hoods to keep local demonstrators from getting to Beijing to report the problems. I think Beijing actually has a very poor idea of how bad the situation is on the ground environmentally in a lot of areas. And that's leading to these increasing, uh, this increasing domestic civil unrest situation, which is it's not a good situation. It's similar. You're talking about environmental pro- problems. I'm thinking also after the earthquake and the whole issue of how well schools were built and yeah. whether, you know, how the corruption uh, um, in terms of building codes. But, yeah. But ahead. a lot of the people invo- involved in protesting that got sent to jail. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was shut, that discussion sure. was shut down immediately. Right. And if you don't have the discussion, which you can have in a democracy, then, you know, you keep the same problems keep happening. Mm-hmm. So I find an Indian model kind of more interesting because they have the combination of a long-term planning which you would get in a China, with the ability to adjust along the way that you get from a democracy. We have a question. Uh, yes. In the U.S., it seems that a state would have a hard time setting aside money for refugee facilities or so on without a national assessment of where the dangers are and what will happen in an emergency. Yes. So is that a... But that process seems kind of stuck. Is there anything going on to help make that happen? And what are the prospects? No, it's... Um, unfortunately not that much and part of it is institutional Um, it's a question of who would be responsible and nobody wants to be responsible if they're not going to get the funding Uh, so I mean in Canada we're having this discussion now about who is responsible for dealing with adaptation issues and one of the departments we might look at is Public Safety Canada which is sort of the equivalent to Homeland Security here um, but without an institutional ownership, you're, you're just not going to get movement on it. So what you tend to get, and, and this is sort of the, the level that I, I, I like working at, is a lot of community action on a lot of these issues. Because communities understand what their local threats are much better often than the um, state or federal level does. So if pe- when people ask me, you know, what can I do or what, what would be helpful, one, one question is, you know, what do you do for a living? <laughs> You know, because incorporating these sorts of changes over time into your professional life is very important. Um, and the other is, you know, where do you live? Do you know what your water supply is? Do you know how your sewage system works? Do you know, you know, is there, are there been changes in precipitation patterns that could affect the stability of your area? And a lot can be done through very simple things like municipal zoning regulations, you know, that are less controversial than some of the big things. So, you know, moving towards creating a more stable uh, environment doesn't just have to happen in Washington. 
you know, you can really get a lot done at the ground level. And San Francisco has been, you know, very proactive in a lot of areas in creating new ways of doing things. And this is an area where all communities would benefit, the business community, governance, social stability. You know, but the discussions need to happen around things like water supply, coastal erosion, zoning regulations, and those sorts of things. California is actually one of the best states for this. The California just released a uh, uh, sort of an adaptation plan, which is a good starting point. And I think one thing we say, at least in California, a lot is where where we go as a state, the country eventually follows. Um, there's some reason to be a little more pessimistic about that. I don't think I'm alone. And I mean, fewer Americans today believe that climate change, anthropogenic climate change, is real than did two years ago. Um, in other words, California may be leading the way here, but I often we see these changes happen on the coasts and not, not you know. The- yeah, but, but you don't even need. I mean, you don't even need to have the belief if you are if. You know, other parts of the country are under crippled debt, you know, crippling right. debt because sure. their infrastructure is falling apart and they've got cities in the wrong location. Where, and you've built a relatively stable economic environment. Uh, people are going to come. Sure. <laughs> you know. or, or you're Houston and you just, you know, your, your local budget is wiped out because of refugees. Yeah. yeah. Um, next question. Thank you very much. Um, I have a question. Uh, can I deduce from your talks now uh, a case for engagement uh, between countries in, for global environmental health that, that the sanctions and also isolation of the other countries, especially developing countries like, like you know, Iran and Korea, North Korea, would not help the health of the environment because if you're not talking to these countries, you have no idea what they're doing and what is being polluted, especially you mentioned hormones and, and Persian Gulf and those yeah. areas. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, isolation is, a, I mean, that sort of sanctions is difficult. I, I'm, I, personally, I, I think there is a real lack of science generally and uh, in, in policy discussions, but also it's, it is a very good way for communities to get together. I mean, when scientists get together and sit around a table, nationality becomes secondary, right? They become, they're quite geeky about their, their topics. So if you're talking about water quality or desalination plants, which is a very critical issue, potentially both for California, but also, also for Persian Gulf countries, there are very important bridges that can be built. Um, there are few environments where where that's happening right now. Um, I don't know what to do about it. You know, there was um, discussion after the Iraq War that they would take all the Iraq nuclear scientists and make them desalination experts. Nothing happened, so you lose these quite valuable people with a lot of expertise. You disassociate them from the international environment. And nobody benefits. Um, there are one or two locations. There's one in Trieste, the International Institute for Theoretical Physics, which tries to bring some people together. But there's a, a real potential, I think, for, for building up more international collaboration among the scientific community. Next question. Yeah, uh, I was trying to figure out actually what my question was. <laughs> but this is back to the IPCC conference in December, if you remember the whole East Anglia email scandal. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I happened to be in England and watching Sky News when they interviewed the professor uh, from East Anglia and put him up against a purported senator 
from Congress who turned out to actually be a lobbyist. And oh, yeah. other than, I don't know if you saw Oops. it, but it, it, was, it was wild on Sky News late yeah. at night, including the comment at the very end by the scientist. And I actually found myself, I'm a scientist by training. Okay. My degrees are in biochemical. Yeah. So um, I actually found myself rooting for this geeky scientist going up against this guy. Yeah. What really unnerved me later is, if you went on YouTube and watched this, is the really viral and rabid comments of animosity against science and scientists and how this whole um, event was used to try and derail, in some effects, at least through the media and sensationalism, um, what was going on at the IPCC that might actually have been beneficial. So it, it scared me, or it, it disconcerted me, to see this kind of anger and lack of understanding towards science. I would hope that what's happening in the change of, uh, in climate change and economic resources that are needed to keep the world running over the next 20 to 50 years is proceeding along, that this is only indeed that media sensationalism and private interests or something like that that are trying to derail something and that they're not really significant. Maybe that's the question. Could you assure me that there truly <laughs> is good or some governance and solid and cool heads that take this kind of event and set it to the side uh, so that true planning can occur? There, it was scary. Yeah, no, no, you're right. Um, I, yeah, I think, I think people uh, sometimes are, are you know, they, they're, they're so sharp they cut themselves, if you know what I mean. And so I think there has been this kind of concerted effort to... Uh, muddy the waters and and make the science quite difficult. At the same time, there is you know the same people will be consulting scientists to do their economic forecasting and that sort of thing. And I think that they're going to regret down the line having muddied the waters so much. Um, I, I personally think, and I've spoken to several geography departments about this, that there that scientists should should have to take media training courses. You know, they need to just, even if it's just one course in, you know, in an undergraduate level, they need to understand how the media works and how their information will be used. We have the East Anglia case is perfect. I mean, the story broke on like a Thursday or a Friday, and, uh, and the scientists were like, oh, it'll blow over by Monday. We won't issue a press release. We won't, nothing. By Monday, it had gone viral, you know. Actually, I think, I think it, it I don't know what you call a virus that's deliberately spread, but I think it wasn't sort of a naturally occurring virus. Um, and then it became this sort of pandemic, right? And, and then every time you go somewhere, you have to, have to fight against it. But I think part of it is that scientists really don't understand how the media works and, and need to be educated about it. Uh, scientists are very uncomfortable about it. They're very uncomfortable about dealing with policy, but it's essential. And if they want to continue to get funding and if they want to be understood, they need to understand how to help themselves get understood. We're almost out of time here, but I can't resist asking you, what is the one thing that scientists should know? I mean, if you had to give the one sentence uh, version of that media training course, what would it be? That the facts will not speak for themselves. You have to speak for the facts. <laughs> Yeah. So are you are you saying that they should learn the facts don't speak for themselves they should speak for the facts 
is that an issue of translation? Is that an issue of spin? And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I mean, I've, I've spoken to some really smart scientists, and they'll say, well, read the paper. You know, if you want to understand, right. read the paper. Okay, I mean, I might read the paper. Most people won't read the paper. And if they do read the paper, you know, that doesn't mean that they're going to be finding what you said you mm-hmm. think you put in the paper, or what you thought you put in the paper. So, you know, you need to defend... They're, they're delicate little things, your ideas and your facts and your data, and you need to protect them. It's, you don't just push them out into the world to protect themselves. Okay. I think we're out of time here. Um, so I want to thank you so much for joining us. Um, again, pleasure. Cleo Pascal, author of Global Warring. Um, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.